All right. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Yes, great to see you guys. Wow, good to see you. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Round of applause for all those fathers. Yes. Well done. You did it. You know, Father's Day, I found this out recently. Uh, it's people's, like, it's really low on people's favorite holiday list. So right at the top, you have Christmas. Makes sense. Second thing, Mother's Day, right? Jesus and mamas, right? And then all the way down at 20 is Father's Day. 20, yeah. I can't even think of 18 other holidays between the first two and that. So, yeah, you poor fathers. Oh, man. This last week, I was solo parenting my two-year-old, John Fox, and uh, that's a lot of work. Holy smokes. I should give my wife more credit. Yeah. That is a lot of work. You, you, you start going insane at one point. You're like, I need another parent around. I need another parent around. So I can't imagine what it's like. Some of you have two kids, right? How many people have two kids? Yeah. And I've seen you in action where you, where you get to insanity, then you tell the other spouse, like, you just need to take both of them to the grocery store, okay? I need some time to myself, right? And you kind of pass off the two kids. Is there anybody with three kids in here? Three? Yeah. Okay. So three. Now, that's fun. That's where you start needing the kids' help, Right? It's like, hey, where's your sister? Where did she go? Aren't you in this with us, right? So you need the the kids to start helping you parent. And then at four, five, six, seven, I feel like it's just a percentage game, you know? So you're in the car and you're like, how many we got? One, two, three, ah, that's 80%. All right, Disneyland, here we go. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Parents, parenting, gosh, so fun. Well, um... If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. I am one of the pastors around here. I normally do the music stuff, um, except they didn't want me in their band this week. So I'm teaching. No big deal. And uh, if you have your Bible with you or Bible app, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to actually pick up the story from last week at the very end of 16 before we get into chapter 17. Now, uh, most of you guys are used to the way I teach. I normally start with some silly stories and some jokes just to make you think that I'm likable. And then I usually show some sort of strange picture or graph. And because it's going to be really hot out today, we're just going to go straight to the strange picture, okay? Here we go. Matt, you ready? Yes, there it is. Um, Okay, so let's start. Uh, This is my wife, who I was mentioned earlier. She's on a horse. She gets to ride the horse. Uh, She also gets a gun. I don't get the gun, all right? And if you're wondering who that uh, handsome person there is with the cool hair and the bulging biceps, um, the horse's name is Cinnamon, okay? (laughs) Now, context, uh, (laughs) this is an engagement photo from 10 plus years ago. My wife and I, in a couple of weeks, on July 3rd, are celebrating our 10-year anniversary. Round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. No, you didn't have to stop. You can keep going. <laughs> but it's been really good. It's been really good. And uh, I can say, I can truly say, the, the only thing that I regret was uh, the first cat that we owned. Am I cutting out here? Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. It's all right? Okay. Yeah, the only thing I regret is the first cat we owned. Matt, if you want to show that. There she is. Yeah, that's Livia. She just wanted to be fabulous. Look at her. This is her professional photos. Yes. It was the only thing that I would take back. We literally took the cat back. You know you can return a cat, right? You can say it can have its old name back and everything. 
So yeah, we returned Livia, poor thing. Livia got canceled. Rest in peace. Oh, it's been good. Okay, all that had nothing to do with the teaching. I just wanted to say some jokes again. So we're going to get into the Gospel of Matthew. King Revealed is the title of this teaching. The King Revealed. Go ahead and look down at chapter 16, starting at verse 27. And we're just going to read this section of Scripture. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified, But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wish. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. If you would, let's pray. So our Father in heaven, we come to you today. And we ask, God, that your Holy Spirit would move in this gathering, that we would be receptive to what you want to speak to us, yes, as a church, as a group of people committed to your ways, but also to us individually. You know the things that we are dealing with. Some of that was even on the way here to church. And so we need you, Father. We need you. We need your Spirit. And we need the teachings and the way and the life of your son to permeate our own lives. So we pray that your kingdom would come, Lord. Would you do a work in this gathering this morning? All God's people said, amen. Amen. Yeah. Well, today is going to be really simple. We're going to spend the first little bit just studying the scripture. And then at the end, we're going to come up for air for the last 10 minutes and figure out how this will apply to our lives individually and as well as a church. Sound good? Okay. So, first thing, what to do with this mountain? Jesus goes up on mountains to be alone. He does this all the time, and uh, we presume he makes time and space for his Father to speak with him in the Holy Spirit. But this time, he brings his closest friends to join him. The mountain here is unidentified by Matthew, which we believe was a literary device to make the reader think back 
to other important mountaintop events in the Bible, think Moses and Mount Sinai, and or our own mountaintop experiences today with God. Now, scholars' best guess is that this mount was Mount Hermon because the last story takes place in what Brett calls uh, Caesarea Philippi or something like that. That's that word, that town name is Caesar. The name of that town is Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, which was at the very north end of Israel in the shadow of Mount Hermon. Now, today, Mount Hermon is on the border of Lebanon and Syria. It's the tallest mountain in that region. I looked it up. It's pathetic. It looks like a little bump, all right? It's not like our mountains here. But just to give you an idea of the altitude, um, it's just over 9,000 feet. So think of hiking maybe to the top of Mount Bachelor or taking the lift like I do. Or it's broken top. Or I think of like Mount McLaughlin down in southern Oregon. You guys know Mount McLaughlin? This is kind of the area that I grew up in. I remember hiking it. As a kid, I was 11 years old. I remember waking up early in the morning, but you start early, you get a good start. And, you know, hopefully, if you have, like, boundless energy of an 11-year-old and a bottomless supply of fruit-striped gum, you can summit the mountain right around noon, okay? You guys remember fruit-stripe, right? It's got the little zebra on it, a bunch of different flavors. I think the, the wrappers turn into, like, fake tattoos, right? anything to take your attention away from the fact that the flavor only lasts three seconds, right? So my dad, here's my Father's Day story, was very clever. He basically bribed us up the mountain with fruit-striped gum. You know, it was like, okay, if you make it another mile, you get the strawberry, hey! Fantastic. Thank you, Dad, for all of that. Oh, all that to say, 9,000 feet, this is no easy climb, okay? So let's work through the text line by line. Make sure you have your Bible out. We're going to go right through this text doing some exegesis. Starting at 28 in chapter 16, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death, meaning die, before they come or before they see the Son of Man. Son of Man was Jesus' kind of euphemism for himself. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So what is Jesus referring to here? Now, some think he's referring to his resurrection or his ascension. Others speculate or think he's talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, Some would say the fall of Jerusalem, AD 70, 70, and, and many more speculations on what he could mean. But the interpretation that is most likely is that Jesus is referring to the very next story, what scholars call the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, keep in mind, in your modern Bibles, right, they inserted chapters and verses, verse numbers. And that's really helpful today, right, when we're teaching or just trying to look up a verse, right? But when these were written, there were no chapters and no verses. So this story actually flows right into chapter 17 in the original Greek. Let's go there. Verse 1. After six days, or translated six days later, this phrase links the previous verse in chapter 16, but it also is used as a hyperlink back to Exodus 34, which all apprentices of Jesus would have known. The story of Moses going up to Mount Sinai, it says, after six days of waiting, has an encounter with God in a cloud. Brett's taught a lot about this, how Matthew totally clues in the listener to what happened in the Exodus story. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, that would be the son who are standing here, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
There he was transfigured. That word transfigured is Greek for metamorpho, like metamorphized or transformed before them. His face shone like the sun. This is another nod to Moses, right? My teacher growing up called it the Moglo, right? You spend time in the glory of God and you've got a little bit of a suntan going on whose face lit up after an encounter with God, uh, Moses, that is. This is Jesus in his full glory of his humanity, the one true human being of all history. But there's more. And his clothes became as white as the light. Now, this is a nod to Daniel chapter 7. All Jewish readers would know this. Daniel's prophecy about the ancient of days, God himself, whose clothing was White as the snow, Daniel says. So this is Jesus, not just in his full humanity, but also his full divinity, right? Full glory of divinity on display. Verse three, just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now Moses is symbolic of the law. Elijah is symbolic of the prophets. Both, notice, both defer to Jesus, So this is Matthew's way of saying Jesus is even greater than the law and the prophets of whom the entire library of scripture and the story of Israel is building up to. Jesus is the apex of human history. Jesus is the God-man. Now, you can start to see why this story was necessary for the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What was relatively hidden concerning Jesus despite his miracles and his teachings is brought out into plain sight for the disciples to see. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He is not just some gifted teacher who did some cool miracles. Yeah? Now, David Garland says this. A quote, we'll put it up on the screen. The mountain of transfiguration demands a radical shift in the disciples' worldview. They cannot remain the same. For such an unthinkable reality had never before been considered, much less occurred. Jesus as the ontological son of God in human form does not fit into any of their philosophical or religious or theological categories, so they must change. And the change will affect everything, every thought about reality, activity in their religious behavior, every dream, and ambition of their personal lives. And the same is true for you and me. C.S. Lewis argued the same. Jesus cannot simply be a great teacher who claimed to be God. Uh, We would call that person a lunatic, right? Let me say that again. You cannot be a great teacher and also claim to be God, right? So anybody does that nowadays? They're crazy. If Jesus is human and divine, that changes history. Let's move on. Luke's gospel adds this at this point. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure when he was about to accomplish what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him just as they were leaving him. Back in Matthew verse four, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I can't help but notice the change in Peter's tone and attitude. If you remember last week, remember last week, Jesus had just got done calling Peter Satan, 
right? Satan, get behind me. So he had a little bit of humility going on, right? He's just like, Lord, if you wish, you know, right? Humility is pouring out here. Whatever you want, Jesus. I think of like Princess Bride, you know, farm boy, polish my saddle as you wish, you know? That's Peter's posture here. But I love his second impulse, too, to set up a tabernacle. Like, it's, this is good. How can we stay here as long as possible, creating space to be with God? Verse 5, but while he was still speaking, like God cuts him off, a bright cloud covered them. Now, a bright cloud throughout all Scripture is the glory of God. It's not like in England where it's used for fame, but instead a tangible expression of God's presence and goodness. So just like Moses met with God in the glory cloud, so too his disciples are enveloped in that same cloud that has not been seen in Israel for hundreds of years before the exile to Babylon. Goes on to say, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. A repeat of the same line that Jesus heard at his baptism. And this is the same line that all of us ache for in our hearts and our souls to hear from our Father in heaven as well as our Father on earth. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. This is what feeds Jesus' identity and his belonging. This is what feeds our identity and our belonging. More on that later. Then the voice says, listen to him. And my version actually has an explanation point. It's like, listen to him. More on that in a second. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. Now, you can imagine how in awe they must have been, faced with the glory of God like Moses, the thunder, and the lightning. I mean, if you remember back to Mount Sinai, all of Israel were invited to go up and meet with God, but they were too scared to go with all the thunder and lightning. You guys remember it was a thunder and lightning storm just a few weeks ago here. And that's nothing compared to if you're driving through Nebraska, let me tell you. When thunder and lightning hits there, you start praying, okay? It is terrifying. It scared the Israelites away. But here, the disciples are led up by Jesus into that thunder and lightning cloud. But Jesus says in verse 7, came and touched them. He said, get up. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, right, we all have to come back down to earth at some point, Jesus instructs them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Luke and Mark's gospel add this, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. The disciples asked him, verse 10, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Pause. This question seems really strange for us, right? Out of left field. But this is actually the logical follow-up question in their context. They just had an experience which they interpreted to be the coming of the kingdom of God in Jesus on the top of the mountain. But check this out. The last prophecy in what we call the Old Testament, right? The back half of your Bible, the First Testament to the Jews. Well, First Testament to us. Prophet Elijah, who in the story never died, would come again before the Messiah to usher the kingdom of God. So here it is verbatim. This is Malachi 
chapter 4, verse 5. This is the last thing you hear about in the Old Testament, okay? See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So Jews in the first century were literally waiting around for Elijah to come. Even to this day, Orthodox Jews during Passover were open the door and like fan and welcome Elijah to come into their home. So this is a very rational question for the disciples. Did we miss it? Where was Elijah? And Jesus replies in verse 11, he says, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. They missed it. But they have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking to them about John the Baptist. You remember earlier in Matthew, from a month ago when we studied it, John the Baptist was rejected and killed by the rulers of the day. So what a strange story for us, right? What a strange story. Can you guys agree? Mm -hmm. It's so important that we see what Matthew is doing here. He's setting up a compare and contrast between two mountains. One, the mountain of transfiguration, and two, the mount of Calvary, where he would go and be crucified. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is revealed in glory, but on Mount Calvary, he is despised in shame. His clothes are white and shining like the sun on Transfiguration, but at Golgotha, they are stripped off, and he is left naked to bleed out in full public humiliation. Here, he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, but there by two criminals. Here, he is covered by a bright cloud, but there the sky turns to darkness. Here, Peter says, it's good to be here, let's stay. There, Peter denies him. He says, I don't know this man. Here on the Mount of Transfiguration, God's voice is loud. This is my son whom I love. But there, God is silent. And we hear Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, you can only make sense of the mystery of Jesus and the gospel and the life of your own soul if you hold in tension both the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Calvary between the now and the not yet, as we say, of the kingdom of God, between the glory and the transformation, the metamorphosis, the thing we will all experience when we are both resurrected to the dead, from the dead. Like Jesus. And here's what N.T. Wright had to say about this. The mountaintop explains the hilltop, and vice versa. Perhaps we only really understand either of them when we see it side by side with the other. Learn to see the glory in the cross. Learn to see the cross in the glory. And you will have begun to bring together the laughter and the tears of the God who hides in the cloud. The God who is to be known in the strange person of Jesus himself. And so now, we're going to transition But we're left with two types of people. There are those who hear this story and reject Jesus as king. They reject him as the God-man. And maybe they'll admit that Jesus was brilliant, right? And he had a lot of, like, nice things to say and things that he did. But they're not willing to say that he is God, that he is king and lord of their life. 
And then there are others here who believe that this story is true because of those who tell it, and it changes everything for their life, everything for our life, our trajectory, all of our ambitions, all of our hopes, all of our plans, and our day-to-day behavior. Those who are like Peter in the first century said it in a letter. So remember, Peter was on that mountain, and this is what he says later, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we are with him on that sacred mountain. So I'm going to assume that many of you are in that latter category. You are the second person. You are the one who has also heard the voice of God speak into your own life. And if that is the case, there is a directive to consider from the text. Did you catch it? It's in verse 5. It comes directly from God. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And this is what the story is finally all about. This is the climax. This is for you and for me as we commit ourselves to apprenticeship, discipleship to Jesus, that we listen to Jesus. Now, listening in the ancient languages of Greek and Hebrew was always synonymous with obeying. So you're not listening unless you are obeying the thing that you heard. Uh, So take, for example, the Shema. Anybody familiar with what the Shema is? Bible nerds, are you with me? Awesome. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it goes like this. It'll sound familiar. Here, that first word here is Shema. Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, and strength. The word Shema literally means to listen and obey. In fact, in the biblical Hebrew, there is no other word for obey. There's no other word for it. So like if your boss or your authority, like Brett comes to me and says, Michael, I need you to water the plants, you wouldn't be like, oh, Brett, I totally, I heard you, I got your email, I'm gonna do it this week on Monday. You would just be like, Shema, Shema. You know, like the equivalent today would be like, done. You know what I mean? When we say done, we're basically like, you know, like it's, it's gonna happen and I'm gonna start working on it right now. So Shema is to listen and obey. Listening and obeying are two sides of the same kind. Think like when the parent says to a child, listen to me. Listen to me. This is not a plea for their attention, right? But their obedience, right? It's not a democracy in the household, all right? You will listen to me. Now, I struggled with this growing up. Uh, I remember in sixth grade, our class was going to go on a field trip, so I came home with a permission slip. Remember permission slips, right? So I came home, and I gave it to my mom. I'm like, Mom, I really want to go on this field trip. Please sign this. And she's like, Michael, I will do it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign it right now. I'm going to place it on the dining room table so you can grab it on your way out. Halfway through that sentence, I was already on my way to my room, right? So, of course, the next morning, I wake up, I go to school, and I forget the permission slip. I'm home the rest of the day, and I am furious. My mom gets home from work, and I just let her have it, you know? Mom, I can't believe this happened. Today was the worst day of my life. My mom's like, Michael, I told you I put the slip on the table. Oh, mom, oh, mom, but you didn't make me listen. (laughs) I get roasted 
by my family for that line every year, you know? It's like, hey, Michael, I thought I told you to get me a drink. Did I even make you listen? Like, come on, buddy. Like, <laughs> you didn't make me listen. So you see, listening and obedience must go hand in hand. Now, why does this matter? Why am I spending so much time on this? Why is it difficult for us today? Um, I think in particular because we've made listening about knowledge transfer. It's part of our, our school system and how we learn, right? You get a bunch of things, and then you go take a test, and you just need to have memorized what was said. It doesn't matter that you actually, like, go and do something with it or change your behavior. And this has all sorts of negative consequences. Um, in his book, Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, you must read it. It's fantastic. Uh, Dallas Willard is a professor at UCLA. He explained the great tragedy of the modern church is that we've separated knowledge from behavior. And he gave an example of that, well, if you go to college, and like me, you take like an ethics class. In ethics class, you're going to learn all about moral principles that govern a person's behavior that, uh, or the conducting of an activity. And still, um, well, let me explain it the other way. Ethics is basically good and bad. Did you catch that? It's good and bad. You learn all about good and bad, but here's the problem is you can take an ethics class and you can pass it and you can still be a terrible person. You know that. You can, you can take an ethics class and be unethical. You can learn moral principles and still be immoral. And this is a problem. This is the most difficult thing, I think, for us as, as Christians to hear today, in particular because we are, we are like Israel. We're dull of hearing. Psalm 81, Brett read it at the beginning, God pleads with the Israelites, if you would only listen to my voice, if you would only listen to my voice, so many of your problems I would take care of. For many of us, we've been around church for so long that we don't allow Jesus, Jesus' voice, to speak into our lives. And or we think we have it all figured out. You know, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I read my Bible, you know, I listen to Jesus' teachings or on the podcast, and yet our life goes on the same as before, as if we never knew Jesus. There's no, there's no transformation. So listening is obeying. If we want transformation, we need to hear Jesus and obey him. Now, there's two books I want to recommend, because we don't have time to go into today. Um, they're both by Dallas Willard, so that's really easy, and they're both on our website. One is called Renovation of the Heart, that really starts to dig into what it means to be a follower, a disciple, apprentice of Jesus. And the second one is called Hearing God. It's a much easier read, and it's really simple. If you're asking the question like, okay, Michael, how do I take those next steps? And, and certainly, how do I know I'm hearing from God and I don't become some crazy lady, you know? Listen, or sorry, read those books on your own time. I think in the coming future, too, we plan on doing a discipleship series, and we're going to touch on a bunch of that. Very excited for it. Um, now we're going to end here. We're close, at least. I've been wanting to show this little graph to you for like over a year since I started working here. This was super helpful for me, and perhaps will give you a way to measure your own seriousness about becoming an apprentice of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. There's no one way to do this, of what we call spiritual formation, but if there was, I really, really like this graph. So uh, if, you're paying, or if you're not paying attention, tune in right now. The question would be, how do we become like Jesus, right? Or you might say, how do we mature in Christ? Answer would be, we become like Jesus by shortening the time between hearing him speak and obeying. The time between hearing him speak 
and obeying. If we have that graph, yeah, there it is. Thank you, Matt. That's it. It's so simple. So as we grow in maturity, we become more like Jesus. We're shortening the distance between hearing God, and you can both hear him from reading the scriptures in the morning, or maybe somebody gives you a word, and or the Spirit talks to you or says something to you, and then the time that it takes (laughs) to then actually obeying God, right? As we shorten that time, we are growing in maturity. Is that helpful to anybody? I thought that's magnificent. I didn't make it up. I can say that. Okay, somebody else showed me this. So now ask yourself, when was the last time you heard God speak, whether by his word or spirit, and how long did it take you to obey what he said? Think about that for a second. And this isn't meant to be a guilt trip. Uh, This is not a question of your belonging or your justification, right? If you are in Christ, uh, you are a son, you are a daughter, you are a child of God. But this is instead rather a way to measure if you are growing as a follower of Christ. And I found this super helpful because, uh, you know, listen, I'm no expert, right, at doing this graph well. I'm not at the top of the list. It takes me a minute or two or three, sometimes years to be obedient to Jesus. So um, where do you guys think I probably fall on this graph? Hey, there he is. <laughs> if you know, you know. Moving on. Okay, so I'm going to have the band come back up. We're going to end here. And you can go ahead and put your Bible away. There's one more directive from our story. I'm not sure if you caught it. It's in verse 6 and 7. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Get up. Don't be afraid. It's the first line out of Jesus' mouth after God tells us to listen to him. Listen to my son. Then Jesus says, get up. Don't be afraid. Now, I think, I think Matthew added this line intentionally. Not simply because the disciples were awestruck at the presence of God, but I think there's more here. Remember the story from last week. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's a terrifying command, isn't it? Right? That puts our entire life into the hands of God. We lose control, our grip on life, and we have to trust God in that moment. We hear his voice and we obey it. But thankfully, Jesus is merciful. He knows that we'll fall. And he says to us, get up. Don't be afraid. Ten years ago, my wife and I committed our relationship to being submission of God's calling on our lives as a married couple. We expected him to speak. We expected God to speak to us. And he did. About five years ago, Remember this, our friend was going to plant a church down in San Diego, and we were like, wow, that sounds great, but San Diego is really expensive, and nobody from Oregon goes that direction, right? (laughs) They all come here, right? So we prayed about it, we talked to people about it, but the answer was no, no, we're not going to go down to San Diego. And it was a couple weeks later, my wife was driving in the car, and she decided just to turn off 
the stereo and just spend some time in silence, in prayer, listening to God, the Holy Spirit. And her and I both were becoming familiar with this. Um, But what happened next was totally unexpected. The Holy Spirit basically got a hold of her attention, just gripped her. And it wasn't like spoken words so much as it just, like, it was just dropped on her that we needed to, one, move to San Diego, and two, a few reasons why we needed to leave Portland. And she was terrified. I remember I got home later that day, and I was like, hey, how's it going? She's like, we need to talk. I'm like, oh, no, the cat again. Here we go. She sat me down, and she explained what happened. And I was like, yeah, okay. We heard the voice of God. We need to obey it. We need to obey. And, and that was terrifying, right? We, we, we were living our dream life. We had the loft we wanted downtown. We had our dream jobs. We had our second cat, our dream cat. Life was good. And God was asking us to sell it all, move down to California, help this church plant get involved. I mean, a bunch of things happened in that moment. And we said yes. And what was so cool was that God was there. He helped us. Every time we doubted, told us to get up, to not be afraid. And there, there were a lot of moments we were afraid. I could go on and on about how God came through. And that was a moment in our life that we'll never regret, obeying the voice of God. So in time of response here, the band's going to play a few songs. You're going to have a lot of space. I want to leave you with this question. What's something that God has asked you to do, but you have yet to obey him? Matt, if we have that slide, you can slip it up there. And if we don't, no worries. I'll just ask you guys this question again. What's something that God has asked you to do that you have yet to obey him? If it helps right now, let's just um, close our eyes. And I like to put my hands out like this, just as a posture to receive. Go ahead and ask yourself that question. When was the last time God spoke to you through his word, through the spirit? and ask you to do something that you have yet to obey him. Just take a second. If you will, remember the words of Jesus right now. Get up. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to obey him. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to uh, respond through song, and the band actually has a couple songs ready to go. So this is our time to respond in a couple of ways. One, you can sit with that question. You can have a conversation with God right now. And then two, at some point, probably during the second song, you can come forward and grab the bread and the cup. There's tables in the front. There are tables in the back. Go ahead and grab the bread and the cup. Bring it back to your seat. And after these two songs... Uh, I'm going to lead us in communion, and then we'll sing one last song before we go. Does that sound good? Yeah. Okay. 
Cool. So the tables are open, but take your time. The band will lead us in a couple of songs. All right. I'll pray one last time, too, as we get into it. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your words. We thank you for your son.